stay there. You know what? I believe that every single person on this planet can make a difference. And I believe that we all have something to offer, something that's so unique that it will change somebody else's life. I believe we all deserve to step into our true selves. And I believe that every single person needs to feel great about themselves. I want you to step into who you truly are and I want you to make a difference for somebody else and for yourself. And I don't think it's that hard. It's a matter of putting one step in front of the other and just taking action. And I'm interviewing guests that have done just that. I'm Karen Vaughan. This is the Get Off The Bench podcast. And here is where you can make that decision to make your life count. It all starts with you saying yes. Hey guys, and welcome back to another week of the Get Off The Bench podcast. Now, this week, I have got a business special for you. So really thinking about all the key components to business and what is the underlying foundation that we really need to get together. We're talking about excellence, culture, ethics, a whole lot of other stuff, solopreneurs, what they do wrong how they could do it better. This is fantastic conversation. You're going to love it. So let me tell you about my guest, Rail. So in 2013, Rail Bricker was given a rude awakening when after a season of triathlons, he decided to run a marathon. All this was part of a plan before turning 50. Each time he ran, he experienced neck pain and it was discovered that he had two blocked arteries. This experience helped Rail find his purpose in life, which is sharing his experience of 30 plus years of achieving excellence as a serial entrepreneur in everything from education to finance to fitness with business owners and entrepreneurs around the world. From being 6,000 foot underground in a mine to starting an education business that grew to have 4,000 plus students to spending years working in venture capital. Rail has seen it all. He has listed companies on multiple international stock exchanges and his financial services group has settled more than $3 billion in loans over 20 years. Rail holds two master's degrees, an MBA and an MSc in engineering and is currently a fellow of the Mortgage and Finance Association of Australia, a certified speaking professional and a member of the Australian Institute of Company Directors. He is definitely not a bench sitter unless resting at hockey, which he still plays at 57. Wow. Welcome, Raul. Thank you, Karen. Good morning. Raul, I lo- absolutely love that you are such a business legend. Like, as we said in the uh, intro, you've done so many amazing things at a very, very high level. But you didn't start there. You know, like everybody everybody starts at certain places and they have to learn and they have to, you know, you've got a book, Lessons Learned, which we're going to talk, well, about your lessons learned, which we'll talk further into it. But your key um, interest is business excellence. You know, you're, you're really, really interested in helping people achieve that. And so how did that journey start for you? Like, were there things growing up that really triggered that or, or were a catalyst to that? Um. Thank you. Uh, the, the question's an interesting one because it's an evolution. It's, it's something that came out of, of almost years of, of, of looking. I mean, I was a 21-year-old working on the mines, and I know we'll talk more about that in a minute, but I was the kind of person who irritated my bosses. Okay? <laughs> Why did I irritate my bosses? Because I wanted to know how my job as an engineer fitted in to the whole organization, all right? Um, and they couldn't understand that. They, and the majority of people on that mine site, 55,000 of them, in fact, only saw themselves with blinkers. They only saw doing their job as a part of what they got paid to do, and then they went home. Mm. Whereas I wanted to know, how did what I do mesh with everything else and so that's probably the start of of going well we need to understand organizations have all these little working pieces that need to get together and 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 then i i was interviewing companies and it really came together a couple years ago into the words i was interviewing companies about culture and i've interviewed 89 companies around the world so far it'll be the topic of my third book um, on culture and one of the companies used the word excellence as one of their core values. And, and that's not uncommon. A lot of companies would do that. 
But when I asked the, the, the people and culture leader, he wasn't a human resources person, it was people and culture, to define excellence for me. He said, well, we say that you can never be perfect. And so therefore being excellent is just being the best version of yourself every day. Mm. But in my work now, when I talk about business excellence, I take that a step further. And I say that whatever your business was yesterday, being excellent means being a slightly better version of that and showing up as yourself, as the leader every day, showing up as the best version of yourself. And so that's the whole, so it's evolved over 25 years to the last five where I've kind of nailed it and I've said, this is what it means. And there are a whole lot of components to it. Yeah, well, I love that. And I love that. It's it's funny how it's, uh, you know, you're talking about that many years ago, probably 30 years ago, you know, you, you were questioning, or oh, where do I fit into a business? And it's only sort of really coming to the surface again now, you know, we're really becoming part of businesses now where people, and particularly with Gen Y, you know, they want to know, how do I fit into this business? Am I aligned with the values? You know, what, what am I, is my job meaningful? And is it a part of the whole thing? And it's, I really love that you're talking about that. And I love the bit about leadership too. You know, I work with leadership groups and the same, and so do you. And one of the key things that I work with is how do you position yourself as a leader? And a lot of people wait for promotions, you know, and they wait for positions to become available. And, and I'm always saying, no, you don't do that. You, you position yourself as a leader and it doesn't mean you have to lead a team. You, you behave like a leader because it's an, leadership is an action, not a position, do you, you know. And I, I, it's showing up as the best version of yourself and, and, and being true to what you show up as because that shows leadership. Yep, yep. No, absolutely. I love that. And when we, you, you touched on being in the mines, you know, 6,000 feet under, like when you, what, what the hell were you doing down there? So my parents, I grew up in a, in a middle-class, probably lower middle-class household. Um, I, I was pretty academic at school, but incredibly involved in things. Um, in fact, one of my teachers in, in my final year at school said to me, what are you going to do now? You've got nothing to be involved with. So I went off to university and then I became involved in lots of other things. But I would never have been able to go to university if I hadn't got a scholarship from what was then the largest mining house in South Africa, Anglo-American, because my parents couldn't afford to send me to university. And so I was under a lot of pressure because if I failed a year, Anglo-American wouldn't pay for me to repeat it. And so I had to pass. I was under, under a lot of pressure to pass. And it's, it's an interesting concept when you get to university and the, the dean of the department says, look left, look right, look front and look back. One of you five will be here in four years' time. That's a, a lot of pressure in the engineering faculty. Mm. So that was, that was how I went to university. And then part of my scholarship was at every holiday, so the December, the long holidays, if you have listeners in, in North America, that would be their July to September holidays for us in, in, in the Southern Hemisphere, December, January. Um, I would have to work on the mines. And so I got some experience during my university years. And then after graduation, I had to work there for two years, um, a minimum of two years. They kind of expected people to stay for 20, but I stayed for my two years to see out my time. And so... Yeah, we worked, we were deep level gold mining in South Africa. So unlike Australian gold mines that go down to a thousand foot, maybe 300 meters, um, South African gold mining is deep level mining. So 6,000 foot was about where 6,300 actually, 63 level was where I spent most of my time on the shaft for about a year. Um, it's hot, it's 38 degrees C underground. Um, you can see who was drinking rum the night before because the overall is stained as they sweat out the rum. Um, you know, it, it, was a, it was a very interesting experience. Um, I've probably got much more claustrophobic over the years. I wasn't at the time, but I've probably got much more claustrophobic. But again, you know, the fact that the majority population in South Africa, the black population in South Africa, um, coined a name for me. Now I'm five foot six. They coined a name for me in, 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 in vernacular called Makosi. 
And Makosi, I always understood to be little boss. And I thought it was just because I was short. And, 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 and so it was interesting. One of the tribal leaders explained to me, no, the term Makosi was actually a term of endearment because I showed leadership, even at that tender age of 21, by engaging with the black staff that the majority of the Afrikaans-based team that I worked with wouldn't engage. I almost didn't see the black staff as people. Mm. A little bit, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago in Australian culture, not, not significantly different, but, but the same thing. And I was given this name Makosi, which meant little boss or little leader because it was this term of endearment. So that was a lot of fun. And that was where I started learning about managing people and, and learning about how to in integrate different cultures into my own. And it was probably where you started thinking, you started recognising your strengths, you know, and started thinking, Do you know, I, I could actually, you know, have my own companies and all that kind of stuff instead of working for someone else. How did you get out of the mine and into um, education? Because you had uh, 4,000 students in, in your... So, um, okay, so the, the, one of the things, and, and, and uh, one of the things I firmly believe, and it's on the back of my book, is that business is not complicated, business is simple, and then the byline is just dive in, which is the name of the book, and adjust your course while you're moving. Dive in, adjust your course while you're moving. So my partner and I, uh, we'd been friends at that stage for 10 or 12 years. Um, he had done his MBA while I was working on the mines. I left the mines and went to business school to do my MBA. It is a, and we can get into a whole debate about the value of an MBA, um, but that's a separate discussion. <laughs> um, came around 1990. So I've got to put 1990 into context for you, for listeners. On the 11th of February 1990, Nelson Mandela was released from jail. 11th of February 1990, I got married. So we have a, uh, that's how I remember that date so well. <clears throat> However, um, with Nelson Mandela's release, there became this, uh, this need, this want, this reach out for education. We didn't understand it. We were white privileged living in the northern suburbs. But, um, we started out, we decided we did our MBAs, 26-year-olds, we thought we'd teach the world how to run their businesses. Terrible idea because we'd never run a business, but we thought we could do that. So we started a management consultancy at the age of 26. It didn't really work out. We won one small contract. And then through a series of coincidences, somebody said to us, why don't you guys teach a course in marketing? We went, okay, we're MBA grads. We know a little bit about marketing. We'll teach a course in marketing. And so we, we started running some adverts, got 20 students the first time we, we started running it. But then we hit on a formula. We worked out how to attract the majority population, the black population of South Africa, with an offering that helped them bridge the gap between poor schooling and not being able to get further education. And so we grew rapidly. We went from 20 students in 1990 to 4,000 students by 96. We, we had six campuses around the country. We owned a 5,000 square meter building in downtown Johannesburg at that point. Um, and, and, and the answer is we were prepared to dive in and adjust the movement as we went along. And we were lucky, we were in the right place at the right time. Politically, there was this upsurge in need for education. So yeah, that's how I shifted it. I, I had got a job after my MBA. I'd worked for another company for about 18 months. Six months after marriage, I turned around to my wife and said, hey, darling, you're earning $300 a month as a teacher. I have to follow my entrepreneurial dream. I'm going to start a business. But for the entrepreneur out there, the advice I always give about getting off the bench, which is the name of your podcast, you've got to back yourself. You've got to have enough, enough confidence in your own ability to back yourself to say, hey, if this doesn't work, I'll go and get another job. Now, you know, in Australia, 2000 and, and, and 2021, 2022, we're looking at a reasonably strong economy in Australia. There's, you know, unemployment is at almost zero. In fact, companies are shutting because they can't get enough staff. And so 
for the average entrepreneur out there or wannabe entrepreneur who wants to get off the bench, now is probably the best time in the world to do it because you will get another job if it fails. Uh, but if you keep sitting on the bench and going, oh, my God, what am I going to do? My no, spreadsheet number 27 says this business isn't going to work. Well, my answer is you've done 27 too many spreadsheets. Just get out there and do it. And then if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Yep. I love that idea. And it's, it is so true. Like what's plan B? Plan B is I just go back to where I was. If it doesn't, you know, readjust my sales and then have another crack at it. Or, and, and I particularly love what you're saying is dive in and adjust as you're going. And when you were talking about that, you know, the, um, well, we did, a, we did an MBA. We might as well teach people marketing. It's kind of like just dive in and give it a crack. And I, I think that there's a, a lot of people just way too scared to just give it a go. And, and failing is fantastic because it just says, oh, whoops, shouldn't have been there, you know, and I'll just adjust it and get in the Absolutely. right place. But yeah. Yeah, I love it. So, you know, you've, um, you've had some amazing business results, as I said earlier and as I said in the intro, and you were um, also keen to get yourself quite fit. And, in you know, I guess we all do it. I do it. You know, sit on the sit on my bum too long, sitting on the bench for too long, all day running, running the business, doing my thing, and we, we do forget to look after ourselves. But you were um, running for a triathlon and doing triathlons fantastically then you said i'm going to do a a uh, marathon in 2013 and you had a scare with neck pain tell us about that i mean i've always been a relatively fit guy i played at state level hockey in my 20s wow uh, and then damaged both kneecaps had both legs operated on and then everything i did from there till 2000 and <clears throat> till 2014 was individual base so running uh, going to gym you know doing stuff like that playing golf I mean I know that you know but everything's individual and and so I did these triathlons because I said before I turned 50 I want to do triathlons and do a marathon and I started running and after about 12 k's which was longer than my triathlon distance so I never really ran that distance um I started getting neck pain um and I'd stop and stretch and go, yeah, that's gone away and carry on running. And my mother-in-law, bless her, said to me, you're not looking good. You're looking gray. She said, I'm not talking about your hair. I'm talking about your face. Your face is looking gray. And my father-in-law had had lots of cardiac issues in the past. Went to my doctor. He said, you've got a friend who's a partner in a, patho- in a radiology lab. Go and have a CT scan of your heart. I'm going to send you off for a, a, a stress test and let's see what happens. And I was in Singapore. I went away with a couple of friends, uh, couples, four couples went away to Singapore on holiday. Got a call from my doctor. And the first thing he said to me was, don't panic, which is the wrong thing to say to anybody. <laughs> All right. He said, don't panic. I said, what does that mean? He said, go to the pharmacy, go and buy some aspirin. Don't go for any long runs or, any, you know, do any vigorous exercise. And by the way, you see a cardiologist on Tuesday. Wow. So a bit, bit of a, a wake-up call. As it so happened, the radiologist who was a friend of mine was with us in Singapore. So he called his partner in, in, in Perth and said, can you tell me what it says on the, on the scans? Came back to me and explained that I had two blockages, one at 95% and one at 75%. So if I had carried on training, I would probably have had a heart attack. But you've got to thank your lucky stars when you miss a bullet. You know, you dodge the bullet. And mm-hmm. so it did make me focus on, on, on getting my book out, which I did. It took me till 2018 to publish the book. Um, but it got me to focus on doing what I do best, which is being out there and helping businesses to grow, to develop rich and robust cultures and to create excellence in their organisations. Wow, and I always talk about that. Why you know, don't wait for adversity to happen. Do you, you know, get get in and get in because what happens is a lot of people have adverse situations, and I don't mean yours was a scare. You were lucky, really lucky, but some people actually do have a heart attack before they realise 
the value, you know, the value of what they're bringing to the world. And, wow, I would have been scared. If, if, if a doctor said to me, don't panic, go to the, I would have been, oh, my God, I wouldn't have moved. I would have been in Singapore sitting still. <laughs> well, you know what? I had a doctor with me um, on the trip, and so I just, yeah, I didn't, I, you know, I, I watched my heart. I always worn a, a watch that measures a heart rate. So I just measured my heart rate and watched it and didn't go any long runs. And, you know, instead of walking down to Orchard Road in Singapore, we caught a cab, you know, that kind of thing, you know. Um, and, yeah, so a couple of weeks later, had two stents put in. And seven years later, eight years later, I'm, I, I show no signs of cardiac ischemia at all, which is fantastic. Wow. So what caused the blockages? Do they know? Was it genetics? Genetics. Just genetics, yeah. Yeah. So that you know, we all ignore our family history. But the truth of it is, I come from Eastern European stock. Um, three of my four grandparents, as far as I know, had cardiac issues. Both my parents have cardiac issues. My mother's still alive, my father passed away. Um it was there. It was waiting for me. I just kept ignoring it. Yeah, yeah. Well, we always live on a wing and a prayer, don't we? And just and yeah. hope. That, yeah, that's we do. And I'm guilty of that. I have to admit, you know, every time you feel something wrong with you, you're just like, ah, it'll pass. But we shouldn't We shouldn't do that. And you've, you've, you've probably given me a bit of a kick in the bum too to get a couple of things checked. So so thank you. But now um, I... I we, we talked about business excellence, but, but you also just, just I mean, I think you've got a diagram and I'm trying to think excellence is at the bottom, culture's next. And so yeah. you, you talk about culture being, um, you know, tell us about the importance of culture. So so I in my business excellence model, and there's a, I love stories. I love, I love sharing stories of, of inspiration because I think if we actually open our eyes to the world around us, a lot of entrepreneurs are particularly wannabe entrepreneurs of that narrow focus. They don't realize that you have to just watch the world. A few years ago, I can't remember now how many years ago, but in the last seven years, I was sitting at a coffee shop on my laptop and I had one of those screens that you flip over and you can write on. Sitting there on my laptop and I'm drawing models. Now, my engineering brain kicked in. I'm drawing a house trying to piece together all the different things that I talk to people about. All the different workshops and keynotes and, and you know, online courses and everything that I run. And I was drawing this house and various models, trying to make a comprehensive way of explaining things to people. And I looked over three tables away, it was a little kid, wouldn't have been more than five, building a house with blocks. And I stopped and I watched this kid with these wooden blocks. And this kid instinctively knew that they had to put in a foundation, walls, and a roof. And I went, there's the model. If we look at that house as something called business excellence, what are the core critical foundations for excellence? And they are culture and ethics. Okay, I'll, I'll give you the whole list and I'll come back to it, right? The walls, so, so once you've created a strong foundation, you can put in the walls. The walls are things like diversity, uh, diversity and diversity inclusion. Well, and, and, and unfortunately, a lot of companies preach diversity, but don't preach inclusion, which is a whole completely different conversation for another day. <laughs> but then you need things like your finance, and that's not only the finance of the organization. But that's about financial education for your staff so that they're not stressed at work because they know what's going on with their finances, right? And it's, it's all those things. And then there's always a block, a part of that wall that I leave blank because I don't know everything about everyone's business. So everyone's business has that unique block that makes up their business. And those are the walls. That gives it the structure that protects it from some of the elements. And then we put the roof on, and the roof is pointed. The roof is pointed because it, put, it points upwards to the sky for unlimited potential. Mm. That's the, the business excellence framework in which I work. And each one of those, so not every company needs to work on each one of those components. Mm. Some might say, 
we've got a terrible culture. Or sometimes we've got a good culture, but we don't really like where the ethical line in the sand is drawn. We need to move that line. Some might say, great, we need financial systems, or we need to work on our diversity and inclusion and all the HR type initiatives in the business. So each one of those is a separate initiative that makes up business excellence. I love it. I love it. When, um, if you're talking about solar, you're talking about entrepreneurs and some being very, you know, focused and narrow-minded, well, not narrow-minded, but focused, you know, single-focused, if you're a solopreneur, so, you know, before you've even got staff, before you, you're just starting out on your own, how do you um, how do you build, how do you check in with your own culture? How do you create a culture just for yourself? The ethics part of that is actually more critical than the culture at that point because the, the ethics, normally in a larger company, the culture defines the ethics. But when you're starting out, it's your ethics, what you will and won't do, that defines how you build your own culture. And then the, the, the thing of being a solopreneur is, so the working title of the book that I wrote uh, of Dive In, the working title for many, many years before I actually published it was Give Up Control to Gain Control. Because there was the key critical component in building my businesses, going from solopreneur with a partner to employing our first staff was giving up control of the admin, of the tedious stuff and taking control back of the things we do well. And so that's the generation of revenue for the business. And so, uh, you know, the, the solopreneur has to know that when they employ their first staff member, even a part-time VA, they need to be able to articulate their ethical basis on which they work, which will be the start of defining their culture. Yeah, that makes sense. That's fantastic. And, and I love, I yeah, absolutely love that. And I think that there's, um, I, I talk about a lot, you know, with people, don't sell your soul. Do you, you know, sometimes you've got to, sometimes you've got to be adaptable and flexible and sometimes you've got to take work that you're probably not really 100% into, but but you've got to know who you are and you're going to know where, where your line is and you've got to know what your non-negotiables are. But uh, mind you, I'm not a successful business person like you, so I might be up the wrong track. But, you know, I, I, I won't budge on my ethics. You know, I, I know who I am and that's, that's all there is to it. But I think, you know, often people ask about the alignment of your personal why and your business why. Well, your personal ethics and your business ethics have to align too. Because I see a lot of people who go, oh, no, I won't steal. But then they do fraudulent things in their business. Where, where's the, what's the difference between those? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Is there, are there um, great components to culture? You're like if you've got a, if you've got a business yes. that has got more than five people, um, you know, what are the components? What are the key components that businesses should be checking in on? So two things. I think they, they need to have a purpose. And, and, you know, Simon Sinek made famous the start with why kind of stuff. But, but, that's, but it is part of that. But the purpose is something generally greater than themselves, greater than the It doesn't have to be a charitable purpose. So, I, you know, I interviewed companies around the world and, and there, were, there were some amazing statements of purpose. One was a pharmaceutical company developing drugs for diseases where there's less than 10,000 people in the world with that disease. Wow. A very niche market, right? Yeah. And, and but their purpose statement was helping people that we can help. Simple as that. So every person from an admin to accounts to HR in that organization understood helping people that we can help. We're not trying to help the whole world. Very simple, but it didn't say what they did. It wasn't the classic, you know, boilerplate mission statement that goes on the wall. We are going to be the best, open brackets, fill in the words, close brackets, you know, using the best people, technology, blah, blah, blah whatever, in the so-and-so industry. It's not that. Mm. It's something greater than that, that everybody... I mean, a, a company I worked with in South Africa, 
has three words as their purpose. Practical genius delivered. Okay? <laughs> Practical genius delivered. And so I said, that's fantastic. I said to the CEO who actually did engineering with me all those years ago. And I said to him, that's fantastic. So every one of your team sees themselves as part of this genius methodology. And he said, that's a great explanation, but it's not what I meant. I said, well, explain it. He said, what we see out there is too many companies developing impractical solutions that they can't deliver, okay? Whereas we wanted to have clever, so the genius, so practical solutions, practical genius delivered. We want to deliver clever solutions on time that are pragmatic and practical. Very simple. But every person in the organization, you know, that, that there was a famous story in 1962 when Jack Kennedy visited NASA and he saw a, a cleaner vigorously sweeping in the corner. And he said to the cleaner, what are you doing? And he said, I'm helping get a man on the moon. Now, we're not going to get into the, the concept of using the word man, but that was the, the, the statement as it was, as it was um, stated at the time. And so that epitomizes that statement of purpose. Every single person at NASA was working to get a man on the moon, even the person sweeping the corridor. Yeah. Okay. The purpose is the one and values, and values come back to the ethics. So purpose is how the business interacts with the world around it. Values is really how the people internally interact with each other and the world. Yeah. Um, and so companies with a strong set of values, and I'm not talking about, again, something that's 12 sentences long stuck on the wall. You know, the best value sets are five or six words. That's it. But each word has a very deep meaning to it. Yeah. That every employee embodies those. Those are the two critical components that I believe create a culture and sustain a culture. Yeah. Where are most entrepreneurs going wrong? Because because what what are the stats? It's something like every business, you know, that starts up fifty percent fail in the first five years or something like that. I can't remember. I believe that over the last few years that we've swung this pendulum. So if you go back 15 years, 20 years, you didn't really know a lot. You started a business, your research was localized. You know, nobody went out and said, I'm going to conquer the world. I'm just going to conquer my local town. Mm. Okay. And so you went out and you did the research. You wanted to start a pie shop. You went into, in, into Gippsland, in, you know, where you are in Queensland. You looked at the local pie shops and said, I can do better than them. I'm going to start my new pie shop because they sell 20,000 pies a year or whatever the number is, right? That's, that's the extent of our research. Then suddenly this thing called Google came along. And a lot of people see Google as a synonym for, a synonym for research. And so the pendulum started swinging from imperfect information to a point, and I don't know when that was, where we almost had perfect information on which to make decisions, but we've now swung the other direction. We've got information overload, okay? And so I think that's part of the problem now is that people don't know how to get to the truth. I mean, we can see it now with the vaxxer, anti-vaxxer debates, all right? Yeah. Because there are so many theories out there. There are so many whatever that go on and they're all based around, oh, I did some research on Google, you know, that for both directions. I'm not even talking about being anti-anti-vaxxer or pro-vax, whatever. I'm just saying that's a fascinating debate to watch because there is too much information out there for anybody to actually, I believe, make truly the right decision. Yeah. They have to rely on their ethics and their morals, whatever, and make, that's my decision I'm making because yeah. you can never know every fact. Yeah. And I think that's a problem with entrepreneurs is they either sit on the bench for far too long because they're going, well, just, just, just one, you know, you remember uh, uh, Peter Falk who used to play uh, um, Columbo in the detective series in the eighties, yeah. he'd walk out of a room, put his hand on his head and then turn around and go, just, just, just one more thing. 
I think that's the first problem with, with entrepreneurs. Just, just, just one more spreadsheet. Just, just, just one more go at the market research before I make a decision. I think that's already too far gone because there's too much information. You can't make a decision. So that's the first thing. The second thing is people's once they've done these 27 spreadsheets and made a decision to open the business, they lose the point of being flexible. Mm. They lose the point of saying, let's just turn a direction. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the best analogies I heard was imagining that you are um, on a, a rowing boat at night on a river and a dark night because it's raining and it's a thunderstorm. Oh, right? no, thanks. Imagine this. Okay. But suddenly there's this flash of lightning and you can see absolute clarity of where you're going and then it's gone. Yep. Now you're navigating from memory. Yep. And then five minutes later or an hour later, there's another flash. That's exactly what being in business is like. I think the problem is a lot of entrepreneurs see the first flash go, that's the way I'm going. And the second flash comes, oh no, that was just fake. That was fake news, you know, yep. the, the, whatever. I'm just going in that direction, even though the last flash said the, the river's turning this way. Yep. Okay. Yep. And so I think people get, A, fixated on their own product. Um, I mean, I think, look, the other thing just fundamentally is that a lot of people say, I want to build a better mousetrap when no one's got a problem with the first mousetrap. Yeah. So they're not solving a problem. Ultimately, every successful business solves a problem for somebody. Yeah. And they go, I'm going to invent the better mousetrap. I'm going to invent the better T-shirt, the better shirt, the better watch. And no one really cares because they didn't have a problem in the first place. Yeah. Well, there's about 10 bits of information in there, but they're all damn good. <laughs> but, you, you know, one of the key things of hearing in that too is that we just sit for too long, entrepreneurs sit for too long and, and need to um, perfect. And perfection is just a form of fear, you know, procrastination oh, and fear. And Excellence is just being the best you can be because we can't be perfect. Yeah. So if, you, if you're happy just to be the best version of yourself every day, then you can be intrinsically happy. Yep. Somebody asked me earlier today, actually, said, what are you trying to get in your life? What are you missing in your life? And I said, nothing. I'm missing, you know, at this point in the middle of the pandemic, I'm missing travel and not being able to see my kids who, who live in different cities, two of my kids. I'm not missing anything. I'm absolutely content in where I am. And, and, and she, there was a like stunned silence because no one's ever said they're content. Yeah. Well, most people are not content. It's, it's, such, it's like an epidemic in itself, you know, that um, people are always searching for what's going to make me happy. And when I get that thing, I'll be happy. But, if we, you know, we're just going to look for it within ourselves and just be content. And gratitude, we're not very good with gratitude. We should be better with gratitude, you know, just... I'm grateful for where I am and I'm just, and, and exactly what you're saying. And I'm just going to do that little bit better every day and I can sleep well at night because I did my best. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly thinking of ways to make my businesses more excellent. You know, I, I still run my financial services group and has a big team. It's done 3 billion in mortgages since we started. Yeah. Wow. I'm always thinking of ways to make it better but I'm happy with where it's at. Absolutely. Um, my staff hate it when I walk in and say, you know, I was thinking last night because they know <laughs> that what that means. Okay. My partner's the same. <laughs> I was thinking last night we should do this. Uh, but again, I wouldn't impose on them because they are actually my rock in that business. You know, the last, you know, I, as, I, as I mentioned to you, I had to take off six weeks because... Uh, my wife had fallen downstairs. Well, um, my staff just stepped up to the plate and did everything. Yeah. 
well, that's when you know you're doing it right, isn't it? That's when when they're doing that and trusting them and, and they feel a valuable part of the business. And when they feel like they've got meaning and that they're valued, you know, you can you can step back and let them go. Absolutely. And that's what, so, so you asked me what entrepreneurs do wrong. I'd say that's part of it, yep. is not giving up control, not empowering people to fail. You've got to actually accept that people will fail at some point, and that's okay. Failure is okay. Empower your team to fail. Yeah. Empower them to fail, to be honest about the failure, to understand what they've learned and move on. So when, what do you think about when you're talking about all these things and you're giving a whole lot of tips that are like mentor-type tips and you do coaching, you know, and, and you do mentoring and that sort of stuff. So I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute because I want people to know what you do. But um, how valuable do you think it is to have mentors when you're, when you're starting out or, or even not even when you're starting out, just, in, just as a business person? I love the word mentor because I don't like the word coach, even though... My business card has it as the fifth thing I do on it. Yeah. Um, the reason I don't like the word coach is because, unfortunately, there are too many people out there who've gone and done a three-month coaching course, and they're now a coach. And they don't have the real-world pragmatic experience to actually bring. They, they, they become too formulaic. Where I think a mentor is there as a sounding board. You can ask a mentor for advice. The key thing in that is you have to be coachable. Mentorable sounds horrible. So I'll use the word coachable. It took me, unfortunately, probably to my late 40s to become coachable. I had to put my ego at the door and understand that I wasn't invincible and that I could learn from other people. So when I started the journey from 2013, being professional speaker, coach, mentor, um, I wrote the book, et cetera, ran workshops and things like that. I found mentors in the speaking industry who'd been doing a lot longer than me, who were happy to mentor me and teach me what I needed to know. Mm. Um, did they coach me? No. I mean, I have been for specific speech coaching, even though I won the South African Toastmasters Championships when I was 20. Mm but I've never been formally trained since then. So I went to professional coaches to work on my keynotes, but I needed to get my head into being coached and not trying to be the coach and mentor, but to be coached. And that's, so mentors are vitally important. Yeah. I think also people go, oh, I've had the same business coach for 10 years. Well, that's a problem because I think you find mentors at different points in your life, some for three months, some for 12 months, some for a long time. But I think each one of those serves a purpose for you at that point. I know that sounds pretty, you know, horrible. They serve a purpose, but it's not. It's they can add value to you at that point in your life. And hopefully you're actually adding value to them at some point as well. Yep. No, I agree with you. I think that I've heard that too. My business coach, and they've said they've had them for a long time. Like I do mentoring for, you know, startup groups and that. But it's if, it, if I don't know the answer, and I don't know a lot of business stuff, Like my mentoring is about getting off the bench. You know, it's about um, the confidence and what's blocking you, you know, and what's going on in here, stopping you from taking that step. But, you know, I, I think that agree, I agree with you 100%. Mentoring is more about intuitive you know, it's listen to what's your problem and it's like, yeah, yeah, well, I, I can help you or I think so-and-so is better, do you know, or have you thought about this? But but a sounding board, I, I, I really love that because most people, I don't care what anyone says, everyone's got the answers within them, you know, like as far as their, you know, their inner guidance goes, not 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 all the business solutions, but their inner guidance. And I think we don't sit still long enough or, or we don't have the right sounding board to allow that voice to come out. And then come back. And, and, and it does take, as a solopreneur and you start getting a business, and even as a solopreneur, being able to articulate what you need yep. from a mentor. Yeah. Okay. You know, a mentor is not there. So, 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 a mentor is there for you to say, this is the decision I want to take. What do you think? Hmm. 
And I go, no, I don't think so because of X, Y, Z. A coach, on the other hand, takes out, and that's why I, I tend to, particularly business coaches, you know, takes out their book and on page 22, it's got a business plan format and says the same way the coach on the football field says, you know, for run from here to here and receive the ball from this player and kick it over there. That's what the coach's role is, is dictating the game. Mm. Whereas the mentor's role is really being the holding up the mirror to yourself. Oh, I love that. Now tell us about your book, Dive In, Lessons Learned Since Business School. Well, that's the book, Dive In. Yeah. Um, there are some uh, free copies for your listeners, and I'll give you the URL. You put in your show notes and all that kind of stuff. So the book's about 40,000 words, 35,000 words. Um, it, it really started out. So in 2015 was my first professional speaking. Um, I spoke at a mortgage conference, which is the area that I know. But I didn't speak about mortgages. I spoke about how to build a mortgage business. And I, I started off with tips and traps from the trenches. I love alliteration, whatever. Tips and traps from the trenches. And that was how the book started out. And I spoke at this conference and it went down really well. And I was asked to repeat the talk. They, they rescheduled it because not everyone could hear it. Did it a second time. And I went, that needs to be a book. And I got on the plane to fly back to Perth. And I started typing on my iPad, which is really hard. because Yes, it is. <laughs> but I got back to Perth. I typed 2,000 words by that stage. And... Every morning I got up and I wrote another few hundred words every day. And then imposter syndrome kicked in. I wrote this book, it was about 30,000 words at the time. And then I went, no one wants to hear the story. I'm just going to put it away. And about a year and a half later, I was doing some work in South Africa. And I had dinner with my cousin, whose wife had just left a job of 25 years at a, book, at a, at a large chain of bookstores. And it started her own publishing business that I didn't know about. Yeah. And I said, okay, I'm going to send you this manuscript. It's raw, unedited. Do your worst. <laughs> she came back to me about a week later and said, it's good. Just write another 10,000 words so that when we edit, we can cut out another five and take you to about 35,000 words. And it's publishable. And so we started that process of writing another couple chapters and and, and for me, you know, it's available on Amazon and on all good sites and you can download the Kindle version. But for me, it's really about sharing that story. Yeah. And, you know, for your listeners who go to railbricker.com slash free book, it's not on the menu. So you actually have to know the URL. They can download a free PDF copy of the book. Fantastic. I, I, love, I love what you're saying. It's um, When I did get off the bench, I, I was because I've established quite a few projects, you know, and a not-for-profit in Africa and all sorts of stuff, um, you know, I was speaking at conferences and one of the guys said to me, can you can you do a workshop? And I'm like, yeah, well, I'm, uh, you know, helping people to kickstart their projects. And I'm like, oh, I don't know why you're asking me. Anyway, yeah, that was the imposter, you know. But then I did the I did the workshop and, and I, as I was running it, I said to people, ah, oh, God, you need to know about that. Oh, we haven't got time. I need to tell you about that. And so then I said, give us your email and I'll send you out a PDF afterwards. And I came, the next day I sat down to write up this PDF, which I thought might be three or four pages, you know, and no, I'm not sitting there. <laughs> just went, oh, and this, da, 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 and oh, and this. And within four weeks, you know, I had to get, get off the bench because it was just, it, it just flowed out. But it was fantastic. And I think the advantage that I had was that I could see that group of people in my mind, you know, when I was typing it. And I could, it was like I was telling them. And I didn't have time for imposter syndrome because it was kind of like they were expecting a PDF three weeks ago. And I better deliver that bloody thing quick, smart. So, <laughs> so I think I was lucky. And my second book, which is just an ebook um, on, on culture. Literally, we were in lockdown in Perth for five days and I started off with some blog articles that I'd written and I just started writing and writing for five days and ended up with a 48-page ebook. 
Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> and, and that's a perfect example of getting off the bench, you know, when, when people will overthink and overthink and overthink, and we've all got an ebook in us on something, you know, we've all got we've all got information that we're that we're expert at or that we've been doing for a long time, or that we've got something valuable that somebody else needs to read or hear. Do you know? And and we keep shutting it down because it's like, nah, who wants to listen to that? You know, like you like you said about your book, who wants to listen to that? No one wants to read that. But people do. And and you, you've only got to say one thing. You've only got to say one thing that will change somebody's life. And I think that's why we should all be sharing, but not giving people information overload because I'm 100% with you. So I'm... We're, we're coming to an end, but I really want to know this. What does success mean to you? Success success means freedom. Um, yeah. But it's not the, the freedom like we, you know, people say, oh, you know, who do you like admire to be or want to be? No, you want to be yourself. You want to be the best version of yourself. But being an entrepreneur for 30 years gave me freedom. It gave me a lot of stress and a lot of sleepless nights over empty bank accounts and lots of other things. It also gave me freedom, gave me freedom to attend my kids' school for every time they sang in a concert, for every time they did something at school, for being in their lives. For you know, for the last seven years as a speaker, I have been traveling quite a lot, but. It gave me a top, gave me the freedom to, in 2019, open a conference in Kathmandu in Nepal, and the next day go and see the sunrise over Everest. Mm, wow. That's what success means. That yeah. can I duplicate that point in my life where I stood there 200 kilometers out of Kathmandu on the top of a hill on a rickety metal tower, which is kind of crazy looking at the tallest building and the tallest mountain in the world and you're still standing on top of a rickety little tower and you're watching the sun come up over Everest which is another few hundred kilometers away from you but that experience and then that that experience that success you know success isn't the the, the fancy car I grew up in a in a household where my parents always said you want to get a job and get the house in the suburb and 2.2 kids and 1.7 dogs and, you know, be Mr. Ordinary. And that was never for me. I knew from a very early age that I wanted a different life. I didn't want to have to drag myself out of bed to go to work in the morning yeah, and drag myself home to sit on the couch and, 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 you know, whatever, have a whiskey to calm down because I hated the job I was in. Um, there is a quote in my book and also something my father told me years ago that said one day when he retired and he was he died too young he never got to retire because he was very ill for many years but he said one day when I retire I want to have 40 years experience not one year 40 times over yeah I love that idea there's a quote in my book um, that says one day you know, at the end of my life, I want to have lived the depth and the breadth of my life. Yeah. And so that's success, being able to do that. You know, I got my pilot's license 25 years ago. I Do I still fly? No. Did it cost me a lot of money to get the pilot's license? Absolutely. What was it about? I've flown 160-odd hours because it was just something interested me. I wanted to know, could I fly a plane? Would I enjoy it? Yes, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the experience. I enjoy the fact that I now understand how planes work. I understand that I could fly everything from a four-seater to a Boeing because the principles are the same. The controls look exactly the same. They're just more of them. But for me, it was just about success. I was at a time in my life where I could do that. Um, it had nothing to do with, you know, burning desire or passion. It just had to do with learning new things, different experiences. So I guess success for me 
is having different experiences every day. I, I have the attention span of a goldfish normally. <laughs> so for me, it's about every day must be different. Every day must be a different experience. Yeah. Yeah, I absolutely love that. that that's why I do what I do too. It's, it's flexibility and freedom. And it's, you know, it's, it's exactly, I talked to you before we started. I've got a sick dog. You know, I want to be there. I want to take my dog to the vet. You know, I want to go to the kids' things. Do you, you know, I want to go and see my family. Well, when we can, do you, you know, when, when it suits me and I want to do, and I want to learn new things. I'm the same as you. I, I can't, I have to learn. I've always got my head in something, learning something new, but I try not to get information overload. Now, what can people book you for? So what do I do? I do effectively, uh, personally, I do keynotes and workshops around business excellence. I, I do a lot of work in the business excellence space around communication, okay? And so actually, if any one of your listeners wants to write an email to me and get my communication cue, yeah. so on the bottom, it gives you four colors or four behavioral styles, and you can identify your own behavioral style and others from that. And then each side is a different color or behavioral style. It is called the excellence cube. There it is. And basically, if you identify yourself as, say, a yellow, all right, a yellow, which is an influencer, but you're talking to somebody who is a blue, who is, you know, a, a conscientious person, this tells you on the side, this is how you communicate with them, how you motivate them, how you deal with them under stress, etc. And this is just a little... Um, so I use that a lot in the work I do. I run everything from 45-minute... In fact, keynotes have come down to 30 minutes, 30 minute keynotes. We're in this. Uh, this has been recorded from my studio. So I can do virtual and I obviously love face to face because that's really where the energy in the room is. Um, keynotes and workshops on business excellence, on culture, on communication, on ethics, on diversity, all the things that make up business excellence. Yep. Oh, I love it. You're a busy man. You're a knowledgeable man. And I absolutely love it. And by the way, I love that communication cube. I'm actually a disc consultant and um, I, I would love one of those. I think they're... Uh, anyone who wants to just send me an email, rail at railbricker.com with a mailing address and my PA will drop one in the mail. Fantastic. I'll put your email at the bottom of the, in the show notes as well. Now, this podcast is um, Get Off the Bench, so it's to inspire people to take action. What advice would you give to somebody who has a great idea, but is completely bamboozled by the whole business thing? Okay, so th th there are two bits of advice I'd give them there, actually. The one is if they are truly... Uh, I think they're bamboozled by the business thing. There are those who are great artists let's call them yep. uh, but and that, that you know the idea of balancing a checkbook is balancing it on their hand like that you know they don't get numbers yeah so then you either have two choices you can either go and get a partner somebody who can do the admin and run the business or you go out and you actually you, you actually employ people to do it now the second one is slightly more challenging because one of the principles in my book is never ask staff to do anything that you wouldn't do. So if you don't know how to balance your bank account as a, as a, as a very practical business thing, and you're going to rely on a person you've employed to do it, you don't know whether they're doing it right or wrong. And so Sometimes you have to go out and get knowledge. I mean, and some people go, oh, give me numbers. Don't, don't give me numbers. I can't look at numbers. That's okay. Then go out and find a like-minded soul who can be your partner. Maybe they're a junior partner, whatever, but they have a vested interest in making the business a success and do that. Yeah. I think the biggest advice is to get off the bench. I know I've, I've said that lots of times in our conversation, but make the decision and go with the decision for better or for worse. You know, make the decision to do it. But if you bamboozle by the whole business thing, yes, you can get a business coach. And I've made comments about business coaches before. Again, you are relying on, 
in my financial services business, the number of business owners who come to me and I go, what did you earn? They go, I don't know. I have to check with my accountant. Mm. You, know, you have to, if you're going to be in business, you can't just be the artist. You also have to be the business person. And you asked earlier, why do so many businesses fail? Because the artist doesn't look at the business side, trust somebody potentially, trust the wrong people, takes advice wrongly. So the person with a brilliant idea that has no interest or want to do business, team up with somebody. Partnerships are a great way of solving that problem. Yeah. And and you can learn a lot of it yourself too if you knuckle down, even if you don't even if you don't want to, you can learn some of the biz, the, the, print, the basic stuff, you know. You have to learn it. And you can't you can't see yourself as that's all I do. As an entrepreneur and a solopreneur, you have to do everything. Then you can start working out what you're not good at and start getting other people to do it. But always knowing that you know what they're doing. Yeah, 100%. Great advice. Oh, well, I have absolutely loved this. Now, where can people find you? You've said it a few times, but let's say it's specific. So, railbricker.com or, or email me, rail at railbricker.com. I'm on LinkedIn a lot, Facebook, more personal than business, and obviously a lot of Instagram as well. Um, they can track me down any of those. Um, Google my name is about 12, 15 pages of references to things I do. Um, but railbricker.com is the source of, of all truth. And, and my email is very simple. It's rail at railbricker.com. Oh, fantastic. Oh, well, I've absolutely loved this. Really, you know, some really great, really great tips on um, business. And I think that, you know, people would be very wise, listeners would be very wise to go and get download your free ebook. I've got it. I've skimmed it. I've got to find the time to sit there and now we'll read it. But um, it's the, what I have read is full of full of wisdom and full of everything you've talked about today anyway you know building the building the block block house and all that sort of stuff and it's just marvelous so thank you so much thank you so much for doing this it's It's been a great conversation and and i'm passionate about the entrepreneurial space and kicking people's butts to get their butts off the bench because if you don't give it a go you always you wake up one day when it's far too late and you go, what if? And and life is too short to have regrets. And so you have to go, what if I'd done it differently? That's a different conversation to what if I had done it in the first place. I agree. Life is way too short and we don't know what's around the corner. And uh, you don't want to be on your deathbed going, I wish I did. I'd, I'd rather say I'm, I'm glad I did, even if I buggered it up. <laughs> well, I, I saw a meme a while back that said, a good friend is not someone who comes to, ba- to bail you out of jail. The, person, the good friend is someone who's in jail with you going, God, that was fun. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I always say good friend, someone who helped you bury your body, but yeah. <laughs> I love it. Uh, well, I've, this has been fantastic. I'm sure people have got so much out of it and you've been very generous with your time and uh, really appreciate it, really appreciate it. Thanks, Karen. It's been great and it's been a great conversation and we've touched on lots of different things. And as I said, I love the idea of kicking people's butts off the bench because if you don't get off the bench, you never get into the game. Yep, 100%. Well, thank you so very much and um, catch up with you soon. And uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, see ya. Oh, guys, that was great. I tell you what, you know, I've had a lot of, um, as Rao might call, artists or creative or, you know, people coming up with ideas on this show and, and, and how they've actually gotten off the bench and done it. We really have probably not had enough business stuff on this show. And so Rao was giving some really, really, really good advice and some great tips there. And I tell you what, go and get his ebook, which we, which was railbricker.com forward slash free book but it, the, the link will be in the show notes anyway or if you wanted that um, communication cube that's another thing so you can email rail at rail at 
railbricker.com. Oh, I really just love his message. I really do. It's like you, you got to back yourself. You have to get off the bench. You have to give it a go. And when you do give it a go, be the best you can be, the best version of you, and try to be that little bit better every single day. Mind you, we had about a thousand other messages in there that are all just as important. But the, the key is just be you, be the best you that you can be, get out there and give it a go and grab life by the horns. Because as he said, you know, he was uh, running his marathons or you know attempting to and kept getting this pain and he had to have two stents put in and you know, uh, you know, you've heard me talk before about don't wait for adversity and life is short and we might as well, buddy, grab that ball by the horns and we might as well go for it. So I really hope you enjoyed that. I got stacks out of that. And he's probably given me a bit of a boot in the bum about my health too. I might need to go and have a bit of a checkup. But anyway, that has been fantastic. Again, guys, thank you so much for joining me every week. And I've loved this. Hope you have too. And I'll see you next week. See ya. Thanks for joining me. As always, I hope this episode inspired you. If you know somebody who's taken courageous action to create something that's making a difference for other people, let me know about it. Go to my website, karenvaughan.com, tinker around there, have a bit of a look and send me a message. I can't wait to hear from you. And remember, you're worth it. Your unique talents and gifts need to be out in this world. And I'm so passionate about inspiring you to achieve that. So you've listened to this episode. Just say yes, make the decision and put one foot in front of the other. See you next week.